There is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. My topic this morning you have on your paper here, what has happened to the family? Of course, I was asked before this morning to talk a little bit about that. And I would say, first of all, what has happened to the family is that it appears to be disintegrating in so many places. But it's very heartening to me to know that there are people here this morning who know what a Christian family is about, and probably some of you are eager to hear as many suggestions as I can give you as to how it is meant to operate. We can go back to the 60s when virtually everything which had been considered normal and traditional was swept off the boards. Then in the very late 60s and the early 70s, the feminist movement began. And I don't think we have begun to realize the damage that the feminist movement has done to all of us, to both men and women. They insisted upon equality. And of course, in God's word, we do not find equality. C.S. Lewis said equality is a legal fiction, sometimes necessary, as for example, in our uh, Constitution, but not by any means always useful. And certainly it is not a principle that should govern the Christian home. It's a hierarchy, not an equality just as God's family is. So the first thing that I would say to you about the Christian family is that the family is Christ-centered. If you call it Christian, that means Christ-centered. And a family is a community established by God. It was God's idea. This transcendent God who created the universe. I always thought there was just one universe, that that meant everything, but I have read more recently that astronomers are beginning to believe that there could be as many as 200 billion universes. Now, if I get past 199 billion, I'm lost. I don't know how you feel about figures like that, but 200 billion universes, it is, of course, staggering. But we know who's in charge. And we know who created all of that. And one of the most amazing names that God gives to himself is Emmanuel, God with us. With us on this Saturday morning, in this particular place, at this particular time. With us, wherever we are, in the messy little confines of our lives, in the living room and in the kitchen and in the laundry and the bedroom and the bathroom and the playpen and the garage and all the rest of the places where we find ourselves, he is still there. He is Emmanuel. And he wants to dwell within each one of us and live his life in and through us that we may be bearers of Christ himself. 
I hope you know that beautiful hymn, God himself is with us. And I love the stanza that says, let my soul, like Mary, be thine earthly sanctuary. Mary bore the word, and you and I are also meant to bear the word, not in the same physical sense that she did. We are meant to be earthly sanctuaries of the life of Jesus Christ. And what are we doing with our families? I thought the best thing for me to do, since I am certainly not an authority on the statistics or what is happening all over the world in regard to families, but just because I happen to be one of those very, very greatly blessed people who was born and raised in a very, very strong Christian family. My parents were seven-day-a-week kind of Christians. I can assure you it was not just Sundays. It was every day, Monday through Saturday, where they took very seriously the solemn responsibility that God has ordained and assigned to fathers and mothers of raising their children. St. Augustine said that family is a community of love. And he put his finger on two great conflicts, which are probably conflicts in all of our lives, probably as long as we live. I would certainly hope that day by day we make a certain amount of progress. But these two conflicts, he said, the love of God to the point of disregarding the self or the love of self to the point of disregarding God. And that is a conflict which our enemy, the devil, is certainly going to continue to tempt us with just as long as we live here in this mortal coil. In Ephesians 3, we have one of Paul's many wonderful prayers. And I often use Paul's prayers because he says so much more eloquently and so much more uh, accurately the things that I would like to be able to say if I were the Apostle Paul. But he speaks there, uh, he's writing to the church at Ephesus, of course, and in the third chapter, he speaks of the whole family from whom heaven and earth is named. It's Ephesians 3, 14. For this reason, Paul says, I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and earth, on heaven and on earth, derives its name. I pray that out of its, his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And he goes on to say, and I pray that you may be rooted and established in love. That's the thing on which the Christian family is founded. And love always means sacrifice. Love always means sacrifice. And if only in premarital counseling young people could be urged to take into, that, into account that simple statement, I think it might make a very great difference in the marriages. I get floods of letters because of my radio program from people who write to describe the horrors that are going on in even Christian homes. My answer to them is always give up your right to yourself. And Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, 
there are three conditions. Number one, you must give up your right to yourself, deny yourself. Secondly, take up the cross, which certainly means suffering and sacrifice. And thirdly, follow me. You don't have to be his disciple if you don't want to be. Isn't it interesting that he said, if you want to be my disciple, and there were plenty of itinerant rabbis in Israel in his time, he was just one of them. We say just one of them. But of course, he was the one with total authority. But he said, if you choose to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, then you must give up your right to yourself. And if we could just remember that every day of our lives, that we do not have a right to ourselves, in spite of what the world is constantly telling us with tremendous power, they're bombarding us with this notion. You gotta love yourself, you gotta actualize yourself, you gotta do your own thing, you gotta be your own person. And I just wanna say, baloney, absolute rubbish. It's not what the Bible says. It means to marry is to forfeit your life. It is to give up your right to yourself. You no longer have the kinds of freedom that you had when you were a single person. And John, in 1 John, says this in chapter 4, verses 7 to 12. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. Sorry, I started reading the wrong passage. It's four, not three. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not love God, does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. Sacrifice was his message. How do we know what love is? Christ laid down his life. He gave up his right to himself. He took upon himself the form of a servant. It was made in the likeness of men. He became the humblest servant in order to show us what it was like to love him. Well, I want to give you some very specific things about the home in which I grew up and my gratitude for those great lessons. Number one, well, you can make that number two, any of you that might be taking notes. Number one was the community of love. Number two, authority. Authority was something very well understood in our home. In the first place, my father had put a very small bronze plaque by the doorbell on the front door, and it said, Christ is the head of this house, the unseen guest at every meal, and the silent listener to every conversation. I didn't pay much attention to that when I was a small child, but I can remember after I learned to read pondering those words and realizing that anybody that came up onto that porch and started to ring that doorbell had an idea of what kind of people lived in that house. The unseen guest at every meal, the silent listener to every conversation, that kind of scared me. Made me realize I better watch what I say. But the next authority was, of course, my father. 
and my father knew very well that he was under the authority of God. And it was his responsibility before God to lead this family. Jesus said, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of my father. And if a husband and wife are determined to do the will of the father, then we are going to have to accept the assigned positions of father or husband and wife. And that is not easy for us women. I really don't think it could possibly be easy for any man who takes it seriously. I think you men have by far the toughest job. God has said that you are to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Now, may I see the hands of all of you men who have done that perfectly. <laughs> Why are the women laughing? Well, we all know that we fall far short of God's purposes, and yet there it is, clear in black and white. The husband is the head of the wife. It doesn't say he ought to be or he should try to be or that she should confer upon him the honor of being her head. It says he is. So he can like it or he can lump it, but he will have to ask her to God for what he does about that. But then, of course, the verse that just infuriates the feminists and doesn't make any of us feel real good is, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands because they're smarter than you are. Is that what it says? Submit yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord. So I have got to learn to see in this man, Lars Grin, whose socks I wash and in whose bed I sleep, Jesus Christ. I have to learn to see Jesus Christ in my husband. And that is a transforming truth. And it is what I tell everybody that writes me these miserable, pitiful letters about how awful their marriage is. If you will start doing that, you will be amazed at the transformation of your marriage. I am to submit to my husband, not because he is smarter than I am, or more spiritual than I am, or better looking than I am, or taller than I am, or stronger than I am. He may be all of those things. He may be none of those things. But if he is my husband, I am to submit to him as to the Lord. And some of you know that husband number three is Lars Grin, and I had husband number two as well. Perhaps some of you don't know what happened to husband number one. He was murdered, and husband number two died of cancer. I'm certainly hoping that Lars will outlast me. <laughs> but God has given me three very different men and three very clear places in which I was to fulfill his word of submitting. So I've had to submit in very different ways. I don't remember that there was ever any discussion in our home about the relative positions of husbands and wives and, and fathers and mothers because it was so clearly understood by both my parents. I just can't remember the topic ever coming up. But of course, when the feminist movement began gaining ground and the topic had to come up, and since then it has been discussed over and over and over again, and women are always trying to find a fire escape of some sort. You know, I've never had a man come up to me and say, what does submission mean? You know perfectly well what it means. We all know perfectly well what it means. You know what submission to the laws means, submission to the state, submission to the church, submission to your, the boss. We know what it means, but we really don't like it. 
My parents demonstrated visibly in the way they loved each other, the way my mother always deferred to my father, the way my father adored my mother and let her and all the rest of us know it. But there was authority, which began with the authority of God. Then, of course, point three for you note-takers, if there is authority coming from the father and the mother, there has got to be obedience on the part of the children. I'm number two of six children. I have four brothers and one sister. And we knew that both our father and mother meant exactly what they said, and they meant it the first time. It's pitiful to see the helplessness of young parents, and we have many, many opportunities. My husband and I spend about a third of our time traveling, which means we're in airports and on airplanes watching the utter foolishness of the way young parents are handling their children. The child can be screaming throughout the flight, and the parents are sitting there shrugging and saying, well, they're kids, you know, what can you do? Little girl was sitting behind me, kicking the back of my seat throughout the entire thing. I turned around a few times and kind of smiled at her and didn't say anything to the mother, but I decided that I would just go ahead and take it. But obedience seems to be an unknown fact. I mean, we don't want to damage their little egos, do we? We don't want to make them feel bad about themselves. Well, we knew that we knew who was in charge. If my father was home, it was my father that was in charge. If my father was not home, it was my mother that was in, in charge, and it was never we children. Another passage from Ephesians 6. You know, this stuff is right there in black and white for us. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. I want to give you young parents a very simple little formula of four steps for teaching these necessary early lessons. Number one, speak the child's name when you need to correct him. And I would certainly say that this lesson needs to be taught at least by eight months when the child begins to crawl. Most children begin to crawl somewhere between eight and nine, seven and nine months. And it is at that point that you begin to realize that the child can be very destructive, not only to himself, but also to your house. And Jim Elliott and I lived in a jungle house, a very civilized kind of a house that he had built with his own hands. We lived in that house for a very short time, but my daughter, Valerie, was born when we lived there. And when she was about eight months old, we had this experience immediately of realizing how absolutely essential it is to get obedience. And we were sitting in the living room, and we had very few precious things. It was indeed a very simple house, but our most precious possessions were our books. And we certainly were not going to have that child pulling those books out of the bookcase. And we certainly were not going to child-proof the house. To me, that is one of the silliest things I've ever heard of, because if you child-proof your home, you're giving the child the message that he's allowed to get into anything he can reach. And then when you go to grandma's house or you go to the grocery store, what happens? 
chaos. So Valerie headed for the bookcase as though she had a purpose in mind that she was going to find out what was in that bookcase. And she started to crawl across the room and Jim said, Valerie, and she turned around and looked at him rather mischievously. <laughs> and he established eye contact. That's the second thing. Speak the name in a normal tone of voice. Don't shout, don't scream, but speak the name. Establish eye contact. Number three, issue a one-word command. No. And every child, I don't care how young, learns what that means fast, provided you say it. I've been with young parents where they did everything except say no. And they were chasing the child around and they were grabbing things out of his hands instead of just saying no, which is establishment of verbal authority. And you must establish verbal authority. My parents did. You say no in a normal tone of voice. And the fourth thing is speak only once. Now you may, I think, legitimately decide that on the day that child learns to crawl, you may decide that what you need is a whole hour to teach this message. So I wouldn't say that you have to start spanking on the very first try. But I would say that by the end of that hour, after you have said, said the child's name, established eye contact, and said the one word, no, or come, and that's another lesson that you have to establish, then let the child know if you do not come when I call you, or if you do not take your little hand off that thing which you are touching, then I'm going to spank you. Now, parents usually say, well, kids are too, they're much too young to understand that. You know what? They're way ahead of you. They understand far more than you think they do. And my mother said she believed that the infant newborn begins very early to understand the touch of the mother's hand and the sound of her voice. And you begin with that. Obedience was absolutely required in our home. And very quickly we learned that it had to be instant obedience. There was no nonsense like countdowns or time out. To count down is to give the child the idea that he can always delay his obedience. Now, does that make any sense? It really doesn't make any sense. If you start early enough, now those of you who have not started early enough and your children are already two or three and very out, out of control, the Lord God will help you. And you can start over. But I would say that the best thing to do would be to go home today and sit your children down and say, you know what, your mama or your daddy has learned something. And that'll be such a shock to the child. <laughs> and we are going to start over. And we are going to speak once. And we are going to expect you to obey. Well, that'll be a real shocker. But you know, it is entirely possible. Number four is order. And in our home, there was the visible sign of an invisible reality. God's word says that, every, that he is not a God of disorder, but of peace. 1 Corinthians 14.33 and 1 Corinthians 14.40 says, everything is to be done decently and in order. We had 
ordered routines in our home. We knew exactly what time we had to get up in the morning because we had to be at the breakfast table at a certain time in order to be able to have family prayers after breakfast in order for my father to get the commuter train. Now, there was no flexibility whatsoever in the commuter train. So there was no flexibility about the time when we got up, the time when we had to be dressed, the time we had to be at breakfast, the time when we went, all of us, into the living room, and we had family prayer, which began with the singing of a hymn. And I was just delighted to find that on the back of this sheet you have four of the hymns that we sang in our family prayers. In fact, Amazing Grace, of course, was one of them. That was on the front part. Great is thy faithfulness, all hail the power of Jesus' name, O worship the King, blessed assurance, and I know every single word of every stanza in those and dozens, hundreds probably of other hymns, because every single morning we were trooped into the living room and my father or mother sat down to the piano and we sang one hymn and we sang all the stanzas, never excluding any, one hymn per day, every single day of the week. And as a result, all of us know probably hundreds of hymns by heart for which we do thank God. And those hymns, you know, they will take you through the night where some of these praise songs that we sing won't. Some of them are lovely. Some of them are certainly very good expressions of praise to God. But I would strongly urge you, if you have not learned the great hymns of the faith, start. So there was... The visible sign of the invisible reality, this order in the way in which things were done. Then there was also a place for everything, and everything in its place. When you go into a messy home, and everything is not in its place, it's either that you haven't got a place for everything, or you have not taught your children. If you take the scissors out of the kitchen drawer, you are to put the scissors back in the kitchen drawer. And if the children leave their toys or their clothes around, I would suggest that you simply confiscate them and just put them away somewhere so they don't have a chance to look at them again for a while. There are all kinds of ways in which you can keep order. I'm a neat Nick, and you would probably say that I need psychological counseling <laughs> because I do want everything in exactly the place where it really belongs, and my parents taught us the same thing. There were to be no toys in the living room. Toys were exclusively in the bedrooms. And if we were getting ready for bed and had not yet picked up our toys, then, of course, there would be discipline. But God is not a God of disorder. I've had some women get pretty angry with me, saying, well, what am I supposed to do, have a whole place just like better homes and gardens or something? You have to talk to God about how neat God might want it to be. The truth for most of us is we've got too much stuff. You need to get rid of it. You need to put it away, perhaps, or give it to somebody that needs it worse than you do. And I love the hymn by John Greenleaf Whittier. It has a stanza that says, Drop thy still dews of quietness till all our strivings cease. Take from our souls the strain and stress and let our ordered lives confess the beauty of thy peace. Let our ordered lives confess the beauty of thy peace. You'd be amazed at what a peaceful home you can have if you institute these simple principles 
And I say simple, I don't mean they're necessarily easy. Number five, and I've overlapped a little bit on this, prayer and singing. In Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 9, we have those solemn instructions to fathers. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and your children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Fear the Lord, skipping to verse 13, fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight, so that it may go well with you, and you may go in and take over the good land which the Lord has promised on oath to your forefathers. Fathers are to impress these principles on the hearts of their children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. And my father did that, thanks be to God. When my siblings and I get together, which is not very often, we talk a lot about how in our old age, the older we get, the more we appreciate the kind of home in which we grew up. Five of the six of us have been missionaries. The, seventh, the sixth is one who teaches in the diocesan seminary in Boston. But we thank God for that kind of a heritage. So prayer and singing were among the greatest blessings. And it is one way of cooperating with God in the shaping of a Christian family. Teach your children the scriptures, teach them the hymns, and teach them, of course, to pray. Parents are going to be held responsible. Teach your children especially to pray about everything. Not, that's not just something that's relegated to one segment of our lives. But pray when you're joyful, pray when you're full of sorrow. Pray when you're hoping. Pray when you're disappointing, disappointed. Pray about the departures and the homecomings and the decisions and the deaths. Do not refuse to allow your children to understand what death is about. Sooner or later, they're going to have to learn. I think it's very silly when parents keep their children away from a funeral of a beloved grandfather, perhaps, or grandmother. My very best, my almost my only friend, whose name was Essie, died when we were both nine years old. I really didn't have any other friends. I had these brothers and lots of boys in the neighborhood. I think there were two girls in the neighborhood and 42 boys that we counted. <laughs> so when Essie died, that was a great experience in my life. I really don't remember crying a lot about it, but I certainly remember that funeral. And I remember the hymn that was played, Out of the Ivory Palaces, into a world of woe, only his great eternal love made my Savior go. And that was Essie's favorite hymn. 
both the words and the music were written by the organist in the church that she attended. There are suitable moments for thanksgiving, for petition, for trusting, for commitment of the whole family into the hands of a loving father. I can imagine that there are some people here today who may be having deep problems in your family, perhaps financial problems. Don't keep them away from the children. Get down on your knees with the children and explain a little bit, whatever you need to explain, and offer it up to the Lord. He's the one that has the answers. Right now, I'm praying very earnestly because my daughter and her family, who have been living in California for 10 years, have just moved to South Carolina, where her husband was called to be the pastor of, a, of another church, but they haven't found a house. So they are being housed in somebody else's house, and the owners of that house are upstairs, and my daughter with her family of eight children are downstairs. Uh, two of those children actually are not there right now. One of them is still in California, and the other one is, has been ill, so she's at another lady's house. But that's certainly a matter for prayer, and I know that God has promised that he knows exactly what we need, and he knows when we need it. So I have to possess my soul in patience and say, Lord, you know when they need that house. Please enable them to find it. And another thing that is the result of those family prayer times every morning and every evening after supper, we were not excused from the supper table until my father read the Bible to us again. Another one of the things that we learned was memorizing. Now, we didn't ever have to stop and try to memorize. It was because we read the King James Bible, which in those days was the only Bible translation that we knew. That was read over and over and over again, and it was read in the public schools. It's hard to believe that now, but it was the law of this country that the Bible had to be read every day in the public schools. So we heard the King James Bible at prayers in the morning, at prayer in the evening after supper. When we went to bed at night, we were tucked in by our parents and in school, not to mention in church. So we didn't have to sit around memorizing scripture. We have it in our heads, hundreds of verses. Number six, and this is the final suggestion that I have, work. It's often neglected that parents teach their children to work when they're small. If you decide that your children really need to have a childhood, and this is another one of these silly modern notions, well, don't they have the right to be children? Yes, and childhood involves work. We certainly can assume that Jesus learned to work in the carpenter shop with his foster father, Joseph. We have no scripture that proves that, but it's certainly assumed that he learned to work. Children need to be taught to work. And it is amazing what a tiny little child can do. Did you know that a two-year-old child can be taught to work? Yes, of course he can. He can learn to put his shoes back in the floor of the closet. He can learn to pick up his toys. He can help the mother sort the white things from the dark things if she's doing the laundry. And if you give him a little stool, he can climb up and you take the, uh, the basket for the silverware out of your dishwasher if you have one and you put it up on the counter and you give him a little stool and you open the drawer where the silver goes and you tell him to put the forks in this place and the knives in this place and the spoons in this place and you won't have to buy one of those plastic things with balls and squares and triangles because he will be learning the principle of real work. And the little child can also empty wastebaskets. 
So if you don't teach him that, then of course you have to do it all. You're going to say to me, well, it's a whole lot easier for me to do it than it is to teach him. Of course. But do you want to have a bum for a son? <laughs> I confess that I was watching Oprah Winfrey one day, and she had a bunch of parents who were being bullied by their children. Can you imagine? I cannot imagine bullying my parents. We would never have gotten away with that for two seconds. But here were parents who had teenagers now, and they were being bullied by their children. And one of them said, if I ask my son to take the garbage out, and he's 16 years old, he will stand there and say, I will take out the garbage when I want to. Well, I was just tickled to death when one of those people in the audience, you know, you've always got a panel of experts on these talk shows. <laughs> And what they dish out is absolute nonsense most of the time. But there was this, one of those sensible people in the audience, and she jumped up and she said, if my son said that to me, he would be wearing that garbage. <laughs> Responsibility. Second Thessalonians 3.10 says, if a man will not work, he may not eat. And that goes for women as well. We've, got, we've all got to learn to work. And my daughter has been quite faithful in that, I think. She had her children vacuuming the whole house by the time they were seven years old. My sister was a real stickler with her children. I think when they were about three or four, they were learning to clean the bathroom, including cleaning the toilet and polishing the mirror. And one of her missionary friends said, how in the world do you get your children to do all these things? It's wonderful that you have such wonderful children. And of course, you know that they were born that way, weren't they? <laughs> and my sister just looked at her in disbelief, and she said, well, what do you mean? She said, they're my children. They do what I tell them. Well, you've got to start early. If a man will not work, neither will he eat. And Jesus says in Luke 16, 10, whoever, cannot, whoever can be trusted with very little will be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will be dishonest in many things. One of the great principles that I would hope that I can get across as often as possible on my radio program, because I have so many young mothers that listen is that every single thing that is required of you is meant to be an oblation, an offering up to Jesus Christ. So I get so many pitiful letters from women saying, I just wish that the Lord would give me something really significant to do. They're mothers. There is no higher calling for any woman in the world than to be a mother. There is no higher calling for a man than to be a father, if God gives you that privilege. And if God does not give you the privilege of being a mother or a father, he does give you the privilege of doing something for him, and that is to be offered up as an oblation. There's an old hymn that says, the trivial round, the common task, will furnish all we ought to ask, room to deny ourselves, a road to bring us daily nearer God. The trivial round, the common task, will furnish all we ought to ask. 
Room to deny ourselves, that's saying no to my preferences. Room to deny ourselves, a road to bring us daily nearer God. Most of you know about that wonderful little story of Brother Lawrence. Brother Lawrence was a man who wanted to become holy. And so he thought that the best way to do that would be to go to a monastery. And he went there, and to his dismay, discovered that he was put in the kitchen to scrub pots. And he didn't think that was very spiritual work. But it was in that kitchen, with all the heat and the noise and the people racing back and forth and demanding things from him every minute of the day, that he learned to practice the presence of God. And God wants you and me to practice the presence of God in our families, a community of love, clear-cut authority, a hierarchy. There is a hierarchy in the whole universe, God at the top, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, cherubim, seraphim, archangels, angels, and men a little lower than the angels. And below us, all the animals. Authority, and if you are not obedient to God, you will not be able to teach obedience to your children. Order, prayer and singing, and work. And let every form of work be an offering to Jesus Christ. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.